This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Come to America, or maybe those who have, who have come this generation or a generation past and ask why they wanted to, why they've come to America, inevitably, almost all of them will say something in regards to the American dream. It's interesting how that little phrase has become known all over the world. I lived overseas for two and a half years. I taught in a a public uh, high school in the country of Slovakia, and people would say, well, the American dream, the American dream, we want to be a part of the American dream. You can hear someone interviewed that's accomplished something significant in America, and they will say it's true, the American dream. The American dream can be defined as the ideal that every citizen of the United States should have an equal opportunity to achieve success and prosperity through hard work, determination, and initiative. And there is something deeply rooted in American about that. Thomas Jefferson would certainly speak to that and the Declaration of Independence would as well, where it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, And that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So right there at the very beginning of our nation, there was this idea that humanity was created equal and then therefore should have the right to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. And so although that idea of the American dream is deeply rooted in the founding of our nation, that phrase didn't appear until until 1931. James Truslow Adams wrote in 1931, the American dream dream, that dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for every man with opportunity for each according to his ability or achievement. But what each of these communicate is not that every single person that lives in this land should have the same success. What they're communicating is that everyone should have the same opportunity of success. And for those who will apply themselves and be diligent and and work hard, there's the opportunity through those things to achieve something in life. Many people throughout the generations have come to America for that hope. But the truth is, the American dream is complicated. It's been complicated throughout our history. It's complicated by racism. If not everyone is given the same opportunity, then there is no American dream. It's complicated by materialism. That sometimes what this does to us is it drives us just to get more and more and more and more with this constant desire to achieve and achieve with the loss of so many other things that might matter more. Just this desire, this materialistic desire to get more. It's often complicated by humanism. It can and has created this idea that everything is up to me. I can do whatever I want. I can accomplish anything I need to accomplish if I will just set my mind to it and work hard. And it does tend to create this humanistic idea that I am who I am because I made myself this kind of person, which is godless in every way. I think in our day, it is becoming complicated 
by the idea of, of socialism. This idea that the American dream is not an opportunity, it's a right. The American dream was always seen as an opportunity. But now there seems to be this idea that it's, it's a right, it's something that should be expected, that every person who lives here should all experience the same amount of the American dream, whether they work for it or not. And we have created a culture in many ways, a system that rewards idleness and discourages work. There's many that believe the government owes them this dream. But amidst all of the complications of this idea, there is actually something good about this idea. There is even something wise about this idea. I would say, listen carefully, there's even something deeply rooted and godly about this idea and also something deeply rooted and ungodly about the idea of, of socialism. That there is something right and good about work. God has created us to work. Every calling in our life demands work. If we will succeed at anything that God has called us to do, it applies a certain, demands a certain diligence from our life. And when we work under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the things which he has assigned us to do, and the reality is God gets the glory from that work. There is something good and right about what it means to work. But the value is not simply in working. The value is in working with wisdom. Working in a way that is submissive to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Working in a way that God has ordained. There are countless numbers of people that work hard, but they don't work hard with wisdom. They accomplish great things, but not with wisdom. And so what the book of Proverbs teaches us is that our work matters, but our work matters when we work with wisdom. I was talking to someone this last week that had just finished reading the book of Proverbs and they said they were shocked by the amount of verses in Proverbs about work. And it's true, over and over and over, the Proverbs helps us to understand that the wise person works, but they work with the wisdom of God. There's many verses we could go to see this, and we'll read a lot of verses this morning, but the one I want you to see is Proverbs 13, verse 4. Proverbs 13, verse 4. It says this, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. So now we see Solomon is... uh, Putting into practice here what we see over and over in the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs is written by the means of contrast. There is the wise and the unwise. There's the godly and the ungodly. There's the one who walks the way of wisdom and the one who walks the way of folly. The one who chooses the fear of the Lord and the one who rejects the fear of the Lord. And so it is, another one of those contrasts here, the contrast between the sluggard and the diligent. The diligent is seen as a wise and a godly character, The sluggard is seen as a rather amusing but yet shameful character. And the reason I chose this verse is because not only does it show the contrast between the sluggard and the diligent, and not only does it show the contrast between what each receive, but it shows us that this issue is more than just the gaining of material possessions. There is something spiritual, deeply spiritual, about being diligent or being a sluggard. I know that because it says the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. While the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. So if we weren't 
to see that, we might tend to think that this is only about material success. This is about the fact that I need to accomplish that American dream and work hard and get something. But I want to say to you, the reality is, is the material word in some ways works like the spiritual word, world does. That as God creates in us this new work, that new work demands for us to continue to work. Philippians chapter 2 makes that clear. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in us. God has to do the first work. We cannot work salvation in us, but we work salvation out of us, Philippians 2 says, which means that a healthy soul demands work. This morning as we were singing, I, I, I just I, I felt tired this morning and I just was praying as we were singing from Psalm 23, God, restore my soul, restore my soul, restore my soul. He is the one who restores our soul. And so it is here that it says that the soul demands diligence. And so all I want you to see this morning is, is, is two things that are taught to us about the way in which God has called us to work. Two truths I want you to see. The first one is this. You were created to work. Write that down. You were created to work. We often have this idea that work is a result of the curse, right? That somehow everything was great and then Adam and Eve fell into sin and then God said, all right, fine, I'm gonna make you work. Sometimes work feels that way. But the reality is work was there before the curse. It was not after the curse. It was before the curse that God had called Adam and Eve to work. Work changed after the curse. We'll see some of that in a moment. But God himself was working. God has always been working. From the beginning, God was working. Listen to what Jesus says in John 5, 17. Jesus said, my father is always working and so am I. What an amazing thing for Jesus to say. My father is, is always working. In Psalm 121 an entire chapter on this. It says, the Lord does not sleep. The Lord does not slumber. And it gives us all of these things that the Lord is doing. The Lord is working. The Lord is helping. The Lord is watching. I mean, one of the greatest sources of comfort that we have in this life is that God is always working. One of the ways in which God cultivates humility in us, whether you have realized this or not, is God makes us sleep. Because sleep shows us that there is a limit to how much we can do. And that at some point we come to the end of ourselves and we have to rest. And here's another humbling part of that is that while you're sleeping, God is still working and he's doing things that you could not do even if you were awake. And so sometimes you just have to go to sleep and you say, Lord, I'm going to sleep and I'm trusting that while I'm sleeping, you're working. And while I'm sleeping, you're watching. And while I'm sleeping, you're keeping. God is always working. Ephesians 1.11 says he is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Do you realize how mind-blowing that statement is? Is that everything that is happening in this world and everything that is happening in your life is a part of God working all of those things together. And if he were to take the time to explain to you how he's working in your life and the implications of that on others, you would never be able to comprehend it. And so God creating us in his image has created us to work. You see this in Genesis chapter one, verse 28, when God created Adam and Eve and he placed them in a garden and he called them to take dominion over the garden. It's a very important phrase. That word dominion means to rule. And so in a sense, God has said, this garden is yours. I have given you authority over it. Under my authority, I've given you authority over it. 
but it really means to work and to keep. And so this garden demanded work. There was things that had to be done. God said, Adam and Eve, I've created you. I've put you in this garden. This garden is your responsibility. It is your responsibility to work. And I think the fact that it's a garden is such a good, helpful analogy for us. That Adam and Eve were called to do this work that is hard work and it is sweaty work and it is, it is constant work. And it is work that at times doesn't bear immediate fruit, but often bears long-term fruit. And in the same way that God gave Adam and Eve this place and said, this is yours and you are to work it and to keep it. So it is that God has given every one of us certain assignments from him that demand that we take this kind of dominion, that demand that we work and keep. You see, what happens in Genesis is that we see that work is not only a part of the creative order, it is a part of the calling of God. In the same way that God called Adam and Eve to work, so it is that he's called you to work. It is a part of your calling. Think about this. Every single one of you have callings upon your life. The calling in your life right, me, right now might be to be a student. That's a calling. The calling might be a child who's submissive to the authority of his parents. That's a calling. That is your stage in life. Maybe your calling is a teacher. Maybe your calling is a wife or a mother, a husband, a father, whatever it may be. Everything that you're doing, that you're supposed to be doing, is a part of the calling of God. And every area of your calling demands work. Every area of your calling demands effort. And if it is a part of your calling, and there's a thousand things we often tend to do that aren't a part of our callings, and often we neglect our callings for a thousand other things, but when we are doing what we are doing and what God has called us to do, and we are working on those things, then God gets the glory from that. It is showing that what we're doing matters and what God has called us to do matters. Think about this. If Adam and Eve were to have been idle, that would have been a sin. Why? Because he placed him in a garden and said, work it. They could have said, well, God, I appreciate this. I mean, this is, I love everything. Gardening is not really my thing. Like I'm more of a hunter-gatherer, not a gardener. I mean, imagine they could have done, like, this is just not our thing, but that would have been sin. And let me say something to you. So it is that if God has called you into something, to not work in that area is sin. It's sin to be a sluggard in an area in which God has called you to. This is a serious issue. And the truth is, sin really did affect work. I thought about this yesterday as Josiah and I were out pulling weeds that's a curse of sin. Gardening, a blessing of God. Weeds from the devil, that's a part of the curse. Because they just keep coming up. And every time you get done, you missed, you missed more than you picked up. That's a part of the curse. And so there is truth here that, that work was affected by the curse. You can see this kind of in two extremes. One extreme you could see is the idolatry of work. And on the other extreme, the avoidance of work. The idolatry of work. People who find their identity in their productivity. Their identity in their work ethic. That they just work and work and work and it matters that everybody sees them working. Everybody knows that they're working and they work to such an extent that they're neglecting a thousand things that matter because they just work and work and work. And it's not a thoughtful work, it's just work. And sometimes work can become an idol. You know this is true. Some of us is different temptations in different areas, but oftentimes we find there's one thing about work that we just idolize and so the idolatry of work is a real thing. So is the avoidance of work. The avoidance of work is a very real 
and sinful thing. It is one of the ways in which sin affected our need and even desire to work is that oftentimes there is a work that needs to be done that we're avoiding. Maybe we just don't want to do it. Maybe we find it's going to be hard or challenging or maybe we feel ill-equipped to do it, but God has called us into it. And oftentimes there are areas in our life that suffer drastically. Why? Because of our own avoidance to do the work God has called us to do. You were created to work and work is a part of your essential calling before God. But the next part is this. You were not only created to work, you were created to work wisely. Get that down. You were created to work wisely. And this is where the book of Proverbs helps us. You have this contrast. You see it there in verse 4 of Proverbs 13 between the sluggard and the diligent. These are both kind of colorful characters in many different ways. But it is through that contrast there that we start to see the difference between the way in which the sluggard acts and the way in which the diligent acts. And by these contrasts, giving to us numbers of times throughout the book of Proverbs, it teaches us how to work. And it teaches us what to avoid. Let me just give you a few of those contrasts. There's first of all the contrast between the one who diligently works and the one who just inactively longs. There's the diligent worker and their inactive longing. The one who is just longing for something, but they're not active. They're not pursuing something. We see that in verse 4 of Proverbs 13. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. So the soul of the sluggard wants something. It desires something. It has an appetite for something. They want to see something good happen in their life, but the problem is they're not applying any effort into making that thing happen. And so what happens? Well, they're craving, they're longing, but there's, there's never any fruit. Have you ever known someone that longed to see something happen and they, they say, I don't know why nothing's working out for me. I don't, I don't know why things aren't going my way. I don't know why I'm not accomplishing this. And in some cases, you want to look at them and say, I do, because you're lazy. You ever wanted to say that to someone? Like, you can't understand why things aren't happening. And it could be that it's because you're not doing anything. And so when you're someone who craves and longs for something, but there's no diligence there. Proverbs 14, 23 says this, In all toil there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. We have all known the person that always has some big thing to talk about that they're going to make it big. This is going to happen and this is going to happen. It says the mere talk leads to poverty, but in all toil, in work, there's profit. Proverbs 20, verse 4 says this, The sluggard does not plow in autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. That's one of those verses that the more you read it, the funnier it becomes, because here's someone who walks out into the harvest and cannot comprehend or understand why there is nothing there to harvest. To which you say, because you did not plant any seeds. You did nothing to make a harvest. And I think oftentimes we find people in our lives like this that they're wondering why there's nothing there. And there's a reason that there's nothing there because you haven't done anything to make it there. And so here's the sluggard who doesn't plow in autumn. He doesn't do anything to work. And then he goes out in the harvest and he wonders why there's nothing there. I think oftentimes there is among many a a naivety about this. This idea that somehow something big's going to happen to me, somehow I'm going to finally make it, somehow something significant's going to happen without the awareness that those things usually happen for those who work. It's the diligent work versus the inactive longing. The second contrast is this. 
It's the one who takes initiative versus the one who makes excuses. Tons of Proverbs on this, the one who takes initiative. They take something, they commit to it, they do it, and the one who makes excuses. Proverbs 21, five. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. That's an important part. The plans of the diligent lead to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. And so now all of a sudden you see this idea of there's someone who, who not only gets to work, but they get to work in a thoughtful way. They're stopping and thinking carefully about this. They're making plans. They're acting prudently. Proverbs twenty two thirteen says this. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I should be killed in the streets. Why aren't you going to work? Because there could be a lion out there. When's the last time you saw a lion? I don't know, but there, it's possible. There could be a lion out there. So this is kind of one of those funny ways that the proverb says that there's a number of people that just don't do anything. And you say, why? And they have excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse. And that's why it says, listen, in all labor there is some profit. And it is the one who labors that receives the abundance. A very important proverb for this is Proverbs chapter 6. This is very important. Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 11. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Listen to this one. It says, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. So here's just something for you. It's just a practical tip. Um, if you know someone who's lazy, you just send them out to look at ants and take notes. That's what it says there in verse six. So here's literally someone say, hey, sluggard, I want you to go out to, to, to the ants and I want you to watch them and I want you to take notes. And here's what you're gonna see. That having, without having any chief or officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in, in summer and gathers her food in, in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? So here's what the ant's doing. No one's motivating the ant. They're taking initiative. They're doing what needs to be done. But how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come up on you like a robber and want like an armed man. So you're gonna sleep for a little bit. You're, you're not gonna do the things that you should do. You're not gonna take initiative and get up and do something. What will happen to you is ultimately, poverty will come up on you like a robber and want like an armed man. And so here's the difference between the one who takes initiative and the one who simply makes excuses. The third one is this. Uh, is the one who follows through versus the one who leaves things unfinished. Sorry, we're getting a little bit more personal here. Follows through and leaves things unfinished. And so there is in wisdom a person's ability to not only know what to do and to do the right thing, but to finish the thing they're doing without bouncing around to a thousand other things. Proverbs 12, 27 Whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. Now think about that one. It says that there is someone who has gone out hunting, they have killed their game, but they won't roast it. And so they're hungry. Well, what is that? That's someone that doesn't finish their work. That's the way of saying there are people out there who start a thousand things, but they don't finish anything. But the one who works with wisdom is the one who follows through. Proverbs 19.24, the sluggard buries his hand in his dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. Now, a proverb like that probably doesn't mean that there was someone out there who put their fork down and didn't ever bring it up. That's probably not what it means. But what it does mean is there are people who start something and they don't finish it. And there's something about the one who works with wisdom, who is thoughtful about their work, 
Because this idea of working and not finishing is really just a matter of an undisciplined or thoughtless work ethic. It's working, but not working in a thoughtful, wise way. The final one is this. It is the contrast between the one who pursues success and the one who lacks ambition. I really want you to hear this. There are some who pursue success and those who lack ambition. One of my favorite verses in Proverbs, there's many applications to this, is Proverbs 14.4. Proverbs 14.4, here's what it says. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. So I want you to think about this. If, If there's one verse I would have you meditate upon as you leave today, it would be this one. That here's a manger that's clean, there's no work to do. But that's because there's no ox. And if I get an ox, all of a sudden the manger is going to be clean, unclean. And so sometimes I'm not going to get an ox because I don't want to dirty the manger. But if I don't get an ox, there's no work that can be done. And so much increase comes from the work of an ox. So someone has to make a decision. And I'm going to pursue success or am I going to just be here lacking ambition? Am I going to say I am willing to do the harder work that this is going to take because I believe it's going to produce something? What I want to say to you is this is that every area in which God has called you to, God wants you to pursue success in that area. He doesn't want you to be satisfied with mediocrity. He wants you to work for this. I think one of the reasons this verse is always stuck in my mind is because I first heard it from my brother Stephen. And I'm going to tell you this story because right now he's in Arkansas preaching and will not listen to this sermon. And if you write him and tell him to listen to this sermon, well, please don't. So here, here's, here's why I remember this verse. My brother Stephen was single for a long time. And he just, he was a pastor. He had a good life. It was, it was simple. You know, he just got up when he wanted to and went to bed when he wanted to and studied as long as he wanted to and stayed at the office as long as he wanted. So all of that. And then he met this girl and she was great. But he started to realize that if he gets married, that changes everything about his life. He started to think, well, man, I'm going to get married, but then I've got to do this and I'm responsible for someone else. And and uh, he was talking to me about this. We talk a lot. And he said, uh, he said, Josh, this is a big deal. I mean, this is a change of everything. He said, I've really been struggling, but the Lord gave me a verse. Where there are no ox, the manger is clean, but much increase comes from the strength of an ox. And I said, okay, who's the ox? He said, well, Ashley. I said, bro, man, do not write that on an anniversary card. Like that is, like I get it. And I think that's a decent application of the verse, but that is not, that she's not going to marry you. Like, this is not good. (laughs) But there is something there, right? Like, we often avoid something that will cause work because we simply aren't ambitious for something better. And every bit of ambition is going to demand more work. This is the story of the spiritual lives of most Christians. Well, I'd love to see this happen in my life. Were you spending any time with the Lord? I'd love my marriage to be healed. Well, have you brought the Lord into it? Like, I'd love to lead more people to Christ. Like, well, is there any effort being put into that? Because everything that we want to to see happen in our lives, every good thing, every bit of ambition demands work. And this is a godly and true concept. It it says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, listen to what Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. So Paul starts by saying, The only reason I'm anything is because of the grace of God. And his grace towards me was not in vain. He gave me grace, and I've applied great effort into it. Listen, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. 
So Paul, how did you write so much? How did you plant so many churches? Number one, grace of God. Like, I, the only reason I'm here is because the Lord came and found me and, and saved me. I, there's no way I would have been here if it wasn't for the grace of God. Well, what else? I worked harder than everybody else. That's what Paul says. Grace of God. And I worked harder than everybody else. You don't just accidentally plant churches. You don't accidentally write epistles. We know this from Galatians chapter three. It says this, Galatians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily. Work hard. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. God wants in your house, in your heart to have a desire to achieve something, a desire for success. Whatever it is that God has called you to, he wants you to do that in such a way that you're desiring for that thing to be good. That you want to raise children well. You want to be married well. You want to work well. You want to go to school well. Whatever it is God has called you to, it is a foolish thing to not desire to be ambitious for success in that area. One of the most motivating passages of my life is John 15. Sky Pratt said to me one time, he says, if you cut you open, I think it bleeds John 15. John 15 is about intimacy with Jesus Christ. And here's the reason I love John 15, listen. Because it shows us that God's desire for every one of his disciples is that they would bear much fruit and so prove to be his disciples. And it doesn't just say bear fruit, it says bear more fruit and much fruit over and over. God's desire is for you to bear much fruit, much fruit, much fruit. You know what bothers me? I get bothered when people say, I just want to be faithful. I don't want to just be faithful. I want to be fruitful. I don't want to come to my ministry at Prince at the end of my ministry and say, well, 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 we didn't grow much and a lot of people didn't get saved, but he was faithful. I want to be fruitful. I want to bear fruit. I want more people to get saved. I want people to fall in love with Jesus Christ. I want people to get baptized. I want the church to grow. I want to bear fruit. It is not enough to just be faithful. We should desire to be fruitful. Why? Because God created us to bear fruit, John 15. But here's how it works. The way in which I bear fruit is not by primarily pursuing the fruit, but by pursuing the hard work of intimacy with Jesus Christ. So here's the thing. I say, Lord, I, I want to bear fruit. I want our church to grow. And so all of a sudden, I, I, I could deny Christ and just go do a thousand little trite and silly things to make the church grow and forget Jesus. Like I say, we just want people to get baptized. And so we do all kinds of weird things to get people baptized, whatever it might be. No, that's not how it works. How it works is this. The hard work I must put into in is the hard work of intimacy with Jesus, the hard work of waking up early and learning how to pray and reading my Bible and fighting sin because it is that hard work that the Lord uses to bear fruit. So now all of a sudden, I've worked harder than all of them, as Paul would say, but the fruit is just the grace of God. I don't get any... I think any of the credit for the things that are happening here, it's, it's, it's behind the scenes work by the staff and the fruit of, of God. And that's what God wants to happen in every one of your life. He wants you to bear fruit in every area of your life. But the effort is in intimacy with him. Let me just say a couple more things will be done. If you've read my book for men, the Titus 10, then you'll be familiar with this idea, but a few years ago, I was studying the book of Proverbs and I was thinking about the idea of work and, I, and I, 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 I noticed something I had never seen before, that there doesn't seem to be any verse in Proverbs about the workaholic. Now, that seemed weird to me because that has to be an issue. 
It's an issue today. It had to have been an issue back then. It, and what I mean by a workaholic is the one who maybe works so hard, he neglects his family, okay? That had to have been an issue in Solomon's day. We know tons of people, well, they're a workaholic. What do we mean? What, what we mean is they don't come to church because they're working. They don't love their family because they're working. Like all of those things. And I reason, I realize that the reason there is no mention of the workaholic, listen carefully, is because there is not such a thing as a workaholic. It doesn't exist. A workaholic is just a sluggard at home. A workaholic is someone who is working hard over here, but neglecting what might be the harder work at home. And so sometimes a man will will go to work and work constantly because he feels good there and he's got affirmation there and he's good at it, but he won't come home and work because he doesn't know what he's doing. And so he avoids that work. So what is the deal? He's not a workaholic, he's a sluggard. And the irony is, everybody thinks he works so hard. Man, he's a worker. Man, nobody works like him. But there's five other areas of his life, like his ministry to his church, his ministry to his wife, his ministry to his kids that are being neglected. He's not a workaholic. He's a sluggard in certain areas. And every one of us have a tendency to do that. Every one of us, if we're workers, have a tendency to work really hard at something but neglect something that matters more. And this is why this value in Proverbs is not the value of hard work. That's not the value. That's not the value. The value is a disciplined, thoughtful, wise work. We should say, Lord, what is it that you've called me to do? Like, what do you want from me? I'm submitting myself and everything else I have to you. So Lord, I, I'm going to be quiet before you. I'm going I'm to seek your will. God, what things matter most? Are there areas I'm neglecting? God, I'm going to give myself to those areas. I just find it so interesting that in the midst of all of the verses of work and how important work is to our sanctification and and our relationships, every relationship needs work. And there's still just this one thing that you can't work for. The most important thing, the thing from which everything else flows, you can't work for. You just can't work for your salvation. I think there's two reasons Number one, because you could never do enough work to make yourself saved. Like it's not, the problem is not that you're just a sinner and you've committed sin. The problem is, is that you were born, as we read in Ephesians 2, a child of wrath. You're born sinful to your core. And this whole idea that's so prevalent in Catholicism that somehow you could tip the scales so right by the end of your life, your good would outweigh your bad is the most demonic and ungodly thing imaginable. There is no possible way you could ever tip the scales in your favor. So you can't do that much work. But I think the second reason is because God wants to make sure you know that the most important thing in your life is not something you can brag about. It's not something you can accomplish because you were really good and you worked really hard and you worked harder than everybody else. The greatest thing in your life is something you have to humble yourself and receive. There are people who miss salvation because they can't get humble enough and realize that I can't work for this, I just have to receive it. For by grace you are saved through faith. It is not of yourself, it is not a result of works so that no one can boast. And what happens at that moment in which you see Christ crucified for your sins and you humble yourself before God and you say, God, I'm trusting Christ to save me from my sins. 
There's nothing I can do. I'm, I'm trusting what you have already done. At that moment, God begins to do a new work in your life. He makes you into a new creation. And out of that new creation, you begin to work by the power of his spirit and your spirit-infused will to continue to work out the good work in your life that God has worked in. Our work matters. His work matters more. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.